Dear Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that you would speak powerfully and with great authority. Please, would anything, anything that's not from you be quickly forgotten, but anything that is from you would be remembered and, and used to change our hearts and lives today. Amen. What were you doing on the evening of Easter Sunday this year, just a couple of weeks ago? Perhaps you were uh, sat on the sofa watching Poldark, or uh, perhaps you were playing uh, games with your family, perhaps you were coming back from a, a weekend away, or just battling to get the kids to go to bed. Well, I take it you weren't doing what the disciples were doing in the passage that we've just had read, huddled together in a locked room, fearing for their lives. Although, of course, for some Christians in other parts of the world, that may have been the case. In this series, we're looking at the last two chapters in John's Gospel. And the incident we're focusing in on this morning uh, took place on the evening of the Sunday on which Jesus rose from the dead. For those of us who are very familiar with the Easter story, and Daniel alluded to this last week, and, and Matt kind of alluded to it earlier with the kids, it's very easy for us to miss this tremendous sense of upheaval that must have been going on in the minds of the disciples. So let's just think about the context a little bit. Today's passage takes place only 55 or 60 hours after Jesus died on the cross, only a couple of days. And for these disciples, their leader, the man who they had dedicated the preceding three years of their lives to, the one who they had started to recognize as the Christ, God's anointed king, he had been brutally killed on a Roman cross. Of course, Jesus had on on numerous occasions predicted that these exact events would happen, that Jesus would be rejected by the Jewish elders, that he would suffer, that he would die, and, yes, that he would rise again. But we know how hard the disciples found it to believe that these events would actually happen and that it could all somehow be part of God's plan. When Peter first heard that Jesus was going to be killed in this way, he actually took Jesus aside and rebuked him. And as we continue to read through the Gospels, we get that sense that the disciples don't really get it. Everything they've been brought up to believe in pointed to an all-conquering, triumphant Messiah, one who would overthrow political forces and restore Israel to a glorious and prosperous kingdom. And the events of the first Easter, in and of themselves, didn't really seem to clarify very much for them. But if you haven't already got your Bibles open, please do um, pick them up now. And we're going to take a look, first of all, not at the verses we just had read, but actually at verses 8 and 9 of John 20. It's all on page 1089 of the Church Bibles. So, in these verses, John describes how he and Peter ran to Jesus' tomb on the Sunday morning and found uh, found it empty with the grave clothes neatly folded up inside. And in verse 8, John says, Finally, the other disciple, which is John referring to himself, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. Great. John, at least, believes that Jesus has been raised raised from the dead. Or does he? Almost in the same breath, he adds verse 9. They, the disciples still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. 
John believes in some sense, but he still doesn't really understand. And in these last two chapters of John, we frequently see these kinds of paradoxes. The disciples see Jesus, but they don't really see. A bit like Mary Magdalene that Matt was talking to uh, us about earlier. They believe, but yet there's this doubt remaining in their minds. And so as we come to our passage, verses 19 to 23, the disciples are trying to process mentally and emotionally a huge range of thoughts and feelings and experiences that have happened in a very short space of time. As we've already heard, Mary Magdalene had met the risen Jesus in the garden. We also know from Luke's Gospel that at some point in the day, Jesus had appeared to Peter. And, of course, Jesus had met with two other disciples on the road to Emmaus. And this incident happens just as those travelling disciples return to Jerusalem. And yet most of Jesus' followers had still not met the risen Jesus. So I hope you're starting to get a sense of the state that the disciples must have been in. There must have been confusion and doubt, but mixed with the beginnings of hope. And I want to look at this passage through the lens of two questions that the disciples must have been asking. But really, it's just one question asked in two different ways. And the question is this. What will we do? What will we do? Now, that question can have very different implications depending on where the emphasis is. So, first of all, we're going to think about what it means if the emphasis is on the will. What will we do? What will we do? This is looking at verses 19 and 20. So if you've ever asked the question yourself this way in life, the chances are you're not where you want to be. What will we do? It could be when you found out that you or your spouse has been made redundant at work. Or it could be when you get dreaded test results back from the hospital. It could be when a child has gone off the rails and got themselves into trouble. And in those times, it's natural to feel anxious or uncertain about what the future will hold, or even frustrated or angry. There's a sense of hopelessness, there's a sense of a lack of control. And I think it's a fair assumption to make that the disciples were feeling many or all of these things at the start of our passage. But the emotion that John chooses to focus on in verse 19 is fear. For all of the prophecies and and predictions that Jesus made about his resurrection and the initial reports of encounters with the risen Jesus, John tells us that the disciples were still afraid of the Jewish leaders. They were all together in one house, presumably working on the basis that there was safety in numbers, and the doors are firmly locked. You can imagine the silence every time someone knocks at the door. And those inside wonder whether the religious leaders have come to round up the rest of them, to arrest them too, and have them killed. Will they use this moment to mop up and exterminate the rest of this new Christian movement? And then, in the middle of all of this, Jesus appears and stands among them in the room. And the first thing that Jesus has to say to this band of frightened, confused conflicted disciples, is peace be with you. 
that's a common greeting in Jewish culture, both at the time and still today. And in that culture, there's nothing more unusual about wishing peace upon someone when you meet them than there would be for us to say, hello, how are you? And yet in this passage, the mention of peace seems so much more significant than that. And John doesn't want us to miss the significance. A little clue to this, I think, is the the sandwich literary technique that Dan was talking to us a, a few weeks ago in Psalm 22. John records Jesus as saying, peace be with you, twice in this passage. The second time is in verse 21. So that's the, the bread on either side of the sandwich. So what's the filling? What's in between those two statements? Because whatever it is, is going to be crucial to understanding what John is trying to communicate. So if we read from about halfway through verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Jesus arrives in the middle of a very tense, scary situation, and he brings peace with him. But it is a hard-won peace. On Remembrance Day each year, we remember not just the fact that we have peace in our country, but we commemorate the fact that a great many men and women have made huge sacrifices, many of them giving their lives, in order to win the peace that we now enjoy. And in the same way, Jesus shows the disciples the nail marks in his hand and the wound from the spear that was plunged into his side. And it's a graphic demonstration of the suffering that Jesus had to go through in order to achieve peace. But perhaps you're thinking, what kind of a peace? The Jewish people were under occupation from the Romans at the time. So did Jesus come to overthrow political powers? His disciples might have expected him to, but he didn't. Or are we just talking about a nice, warm feeling of peace within ourselves? Is that what Jesus wants us to have? Well, the truth is that none of those things adequately describe the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar at all, but I'm told that the word shalom, meaning peace, carries a sense of wholeness, of completeness, and harmony. It's the idea that all is right with the world. And Jesus came to bring peace, to bring shalom, between human beings and God. Now, we're not naturally at peace with God. In fact, the Bible describes us as God's enemies. Our sin separates us from God, since he is perfectly holy and he cannot be in relationship with sinful human beings like me and you. So God's solution was to send himself in the person of Jesus into our world. And he came at a particular time to a particular place with the ultimate intention of dying. Why? Because being fully God and fully man, Jesus was in a unique position of being able to substitute himself for sinful humans. His sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for all of his people. He had no sin of his own. And it was appropriate, since he too is a human like us. Now, for some of you, that may be very, very familiar, although wonderful to be reminded of. For others, it might be very new. If it is, uh, if it raises questions for you, maybe you're just visiting 
here today, you're not sure whether you're, you call yourself a Christian, can I encourage you to speak to a follower of Jesus today? Ask them the questions that you have. As our passage makes clear, there is such a thing as sin, but there is also such a thing as real forgiveness. But even if you've been following Jesus for 5, 10, 30, 50 years or more, I'm sure you don't find it easy. Whilst we're still in this world, we're impacted by any number of events and circumstances that cause us to lose our peace, to lose our shalom, if you like. We don't always feel at peace. We do get worried. We do get stressed. We do doubt. We do mourn. And sometimes we do feel afraid. But when the disciples saw the risen Jesus, their fear turned to joy. They were overjoyed, in fact. This was the real Jesus. The physical details of his wounds proved that he was not a ghost. This was someone they could reach out and touch. In Luke's account of the same incident in his gospel, we're told that Jesus ate a piece of fish in the presence of the disciples to further prove that he had a physical nature. So this was not some sort of mass hallucination, if that's even possible. Of course, today we do not see Jesus physically risen. But John's whole purpose of writing his gospel, as he explains in verse 31, is so that people like us, living after these events took place in history, can read and know and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and so have life in his name. And if Jesus really is risen, it changes everything. It means that the price has been paid for our sin. In his book, King's Cross, the New York pastor Tim Keller writes, After a criminal does his time in jail and fully satisfies the sentence, the law has no more claim on him and he walks out free. Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins. That was an infinite sentence, but he must have satisfied it fully because on Easter Sunday he walked out free. The resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full right across history so that nobody could miss it. If the penalty for our sin has been paid in full, it is as liberating for us as it is for a man walking out of prison. We could be set free from fear, from worry, because we know that in the true perspective of an eternity of perfect joy, the troubles of this life are, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, light and momentary. Now that is very easy to say. It's much harder to put into practice. It's a choice we have to make. It's a battle we have to fight every day. Do we choose to believe this or not? Will we go to Jesus in prayer, lay our concerns before him, and then trust him to provide? Jesus offers peace and joy if we're willing to reach out and grab it. So moving on to our second point, you'll remember that I said we were looking at the same question today, but in two different ways. The first was to ask, what will we do? But the second is to ask, what will we do? What will we do? By putting the emphasis on the do, it changes the tone of the question completely. 
It's no longer a desperate expression of, of hopelessness. Instead, it becomes a statement of intent. We know we can and we must do something, but what is it that we should do? Well, if the disciples were wondering about what was going to happen next, Jesus has an answer for them in verses 21 to 23. Jesus is sending his disciples out into the world in the same way that God the Father sent Jesus into the world. They, like him, will have a mission to complete. What we have in these verses is almost like a preview of the Great Commission. It's not quite the green light, but it seems to be the amber, the get ready to go. We heard last week how Jesus commanded Mary Magdalene not to cling on to him, since he would soon be returning to the Father. Jesus may be raised from the dead, but he wasn't going to be around physically for very long. The particular phase of Jesus' work was nearly over, and the work of proclaiming the good news of the gospel to the world would fall to his followers. But how can this ragtag bunch of largely uneducated men and women go out into the world and make any noticeable difference whatsoever? How can they possibly have the boldness to unlock the door and go out and preach to the very people who have just conspired to kill the Son of God? Well, they are going to need power and authority. And that power and that authority will come from the Holy Spirit. Now, what I'm going to say for the rest of the sermon uh, could be controversial, which is a good way to get your attention. See, ears pricking up. Um, I say that not for the sake of controversy, but because Bible-believing Christians down the centuries have disagreed over verses 22 and 23. And all I can do is guide us through what I've come to see as probably the most likely explanation for what these difficult verses mean. But some of you may disagree, and that's okay. So the first question raised by verse 22 is this. Why does Jesus say, receive the Holy Spirit? And why does he breathe on the disciples? Didn't the disciples receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? a few weeks later. So what's going on here? Well, there are several reasons why I think this incident doesn't seem to represent a full and final giving of the Holy Spirit, even to the disciples who were present. One is that in the original Greek, uh, there is no suggestion that Jesus breathed on the disciples. The words on them simply aren't there in the original manuscripts. So the biblical scholar Don Carson suggests that the sentence would be better translated as, and with that he breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So with that understanding of the verse, we are starting to move towards a view that what Jesus is doing here is at least partially symbolic. And that seems to make sense, because if all the Holy Spirit is is Jesus' literal, physical breath, then how do we as Christians today receive the Holy Spirit? Has Jesus physically breathed on us? But I think a more compelling reason why what we are reading about here is symbolic is the lack of impact it seems to have on the disciples. A week after the events of this passage, they're still locked in a, uh, huddled together in a locked room, seemingly frightened of the authorities. In the next chapter, Peter and some of his friends go back to fishing, back to the day job. They're still fishers of fish. They're not the fishers of men, Jesus said they would be. 
the disciples don't seem to be utterly transformed by the Spirit until we do get to Pentecost. But after Pentecost, there was a remarkable change in the disciples, which could only be explained by the presence of the Spirit. Peter goes from repeatedly denying knowing Jesus to preaching a hard-hitting gospel sermon to the very people who got Jesus killed just weeks earlier. Therefore, it seems to be the case that what we have here is kind of like an acted-out parable in which Jesus confirms that the Holy Spirit is coming soon. It's a final preparation for what will happen at Pentecost. Luke's account of the same event makes this clearer, where Jesus says, I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So what? Why does any of this matter to us today? Well, it matters because we have been tasked of continuing the work of reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus. If we are to achieve that, the empowering presence of the Spirit is absolutely essential for us too. It will be the Spirit who gives us the words to say when we have an opportunity to speak for Christ, but we feel tongue-tied or inadequate. It's only because of the Holy Spirit that the message of the gospel didn't fizzle out and die with these first disciples. And the same applies to us today. The Spirit is essential for us too. Now this is where verse 23 comes in. And it's another surprising, tricky verse, as Jesus seems to give the disciples the ability to forgive sins. But surely only God can forgive sins. So again we must ask, what does Jesus really mean here? I think the answer lies in the fact that as the disciples go out and by the power of the Spirit preach the good news of Jesus, some will accept that message and respond in repentance and faith. But others will reject that message and continue to stubbornly walk away from God. Now, at its root, the gospel is not complicated. Jesus himself taught that you're either for him or you're against him. If you bow the knees of him and accept him as Lord and Saviour, you will receive forgiveness of, of sins, of all your sins. But if you don't receive him, you won't be forgiven. And Christians are no more than ambassadors for Christ in this world. As we pass along the message that's given to us, there is a, a right sense in which we can declare that someone's sins are forgiven or that they're not. It doesn't mean we decide whether they're forgiven or not. We can declare, but not decide. Perhaps an analogy will help us to grasp this better. Imagine you work for a bank, and that part of your job uh, in the bank is to meet with customers who owe money to that bank. You're not the CEO or the chairman, you're an ordinary, humble, run-of-the-mill employee. But the senior directors of the bank have set out a very clear policy on how to deal with debtors. And as you sit down with a customer, you have in black and white, on letterhead of paper with the chairman's signature at the bottom, a document which sets out the conditions under which someone may have their debt cancelled. And it's your job to apply that policy to the individual customers who come into your branch. Now as such, great authority has been delegated to you, even though you may be a humble bank employee. It doesn't matter how big the debt that someone has run up with the bank, if the policy says their debt should be cancelled, 
then you have the authority to declare that to the customer. Now, as with any analogy, that won't perfectly capture what it is like for Christians passing on the gospel message to a world in which some people will accept him and some people will reject him. But as Christians filled with the Holy Spirit, we have been given authority from Jesus to play this role. In Peter's first letter, he describes Christians as a royal priesthood. And one of the key jobs of a priest in the Old Testament was to declare when someone had been forgiven of their sin. And this is now something that all Christians can do. And it's not something that's reserved for those within the church with a a title or a salary. Now, over the years, people have misinterpreted these verses and taken the principle too far. We must remember that although we have authority to declare sins forgiven, it is God who ultimately decides. To go back to the bank illustration, he is the one who writes the policy because he is the one to whom the debt is owed. He must write off the debt, but because God is always faithful to his word, we can declare it. Now, I'm not suggesting that we go out into the streets of East Oxford this afternoon and cast judgment over everyone we see. That would be completely contrary to what Jesus taught. But in some situations, if we have put forward a clear presentation of the gospel, then the state of someone's heart will reveal itself by the way they respond. And there might be times when it would be appropriate to wisely and responsibly tell someone what their attitude towards God uh, tells us about their standing before him, either for good or for bad. We might not be absolutely 100% accurate with this. It's possible that we, we could get it wrong. We are human beings, we're fallible. God is in possession of all the facts, and we are not. He will judge justly. But at the same time, we have to trust that we have been given clear revelation in the Bible. And Jesus expects us to put this into practice as we go about telling people the gospel. So, what will we do? What will you do? That's the question we've been looking at from two different angles this morning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus is not risen, then Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Perhaps the disciples were thinking similar things that first Easter Sunday night. But Jesus is risen, so neither our faith nor our preaching are useless. In fact, the complete opposite is true. We're not to despair, but we can have abundant joy. We can bring our fears and our our worries before him. We can leave them there and then come away with Jesus' peace. We can go out with boldness and authority, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to tell the world of the forgiveness that is available through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank and praise you that you are not dead but alive. Thank you that you died to win peace for us with God as you took the punishment for our sin upon yourself. Thank you that you rose again to show that the price had been paid for our sin in full. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit so that we may have power and authority to go out into the world and declare your gospel to everyone we meet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.